Hello and welcome to episode seven of Making Media Now. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. For more than 15 years, Diana Rogers has lived on a working organic farm, raising vegetables and pasture-based animals. In 2010, she realized the solution to her celiac disease and blood sugar roller coaster was to eat an ancestral type diet. From there, she decided to change her career in order to help others through diet and lifestyle changes. Today, Diana is a registered dietitian with a busy clinical practice and the author of two best-selling books. And now with the upcoming release of her documentary, Sacred Cow, which will be available for streaming on January 5th, 2021, Diana can add director to her long list of creative achievements. Sacred Cow probes the fundamental moral, environmental, and nutritional quandaries we face in raising and eating animals. In the film, Diana focuses her lens on the largest and perhaps most maligned of farm animals, the cow. Here is the trailer. There's a debate out there about whether or not we should be eating meat. Red meat is now worse for us in our minds than fat ever could have been because there are so many more reasons to avoid red meat, not only for your health, but also now for the goodness of others, including not killing animals, and for the good of the planet. You can't blame people for being confused. They're trying to make really important moral and ethical decisions about what they should eat and how they should live. It's easy to fall for extreme, simple answers. The majority of meat produced in this country is under such abhorrent conditions. We both are making reactions to the same evil, if you will. They're just different choices of how to do it. But what if we're arguing about the wrong thing? You look at the Midwest now in the United States, it's corn and soy, and corn and soy, and more corn. This massive amount of monoculture is having devastating effects on the environment. What used to be great biodiversity is gone. The agricultural revolution has been transitioned into the processed food revolution. If you want to fatten up your animals, you put them in a pen where they can't run around and get physical activity, and you feed them lots of grain. Humans are like that, too. What if the very animals we're fighting about are a key piece of fixing what's broken? The animals are going to die, and your only choice now is to do it well. That is the only choice left. Are we going to be the death that's killing everything, or are we going to be the death that's part of the cycle of life, that actually makes life stronger? Those are really our only options. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers of all stripes with its array of benefits and services. Visit FC at filmmakerscollab.org to learn more. And if you're enjoying these conversations, please remember to subscribe, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Diana Rogers. Joining me now is filmmaker, real food nutritionist, author, and sustainability expert, and podcaster, Diana Rogers. Welcome, Diana. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so that's a mouthful. 
in terms of uh, listing off all of the roles that you play. Um, when you wake up day to day, do you have to say to yourself, what am I doing most today or first today? I, I live by my calendar and it's whatever my calendar tells me I'm doing that day is what I'm doing that day. Which so. hat you put on. Yeah, I tend to, um, I have a clinical nutrition practice uh, that I, I tend to do about two and a half days a week. So I know on those days, it's generally going to be a clinician day. It's can be hard for me to switch gears between creative media and then uh, clinical. So um, I try to sort of compartmentalize them a little bit. Uh, you and I spoke about two years ago when you were part of a, you were a producer, I believe, of a film called Kale versus Cow. And you had also been a producer of a short called Soft Slaughter. And your new film is called Sacred Cow, The Nutritional, Environmental, and Ethical Case for Better Meat. I want our conversation to uh, kind of connect some dots between where you started out sort of professionally uh, how you gravitated toward being the type of nutritionist and uh, dietary clinician that you are, and then how you became this multimedia maven, uh, being an author and a filmmaker. So if I remember correctly, in back a couple of decades ago, you were actually working in the food industry. Is this correct? It's a long, very organic story about how this all sort of came together. Um, and I should correct, I, I wasn't the producer of Soft, Soft Slaughter. I was just a, and it, I helped to make it happen, but okay. there, it was produced by um, a different woman. Um, and actually, Kale versus Cow was the first name of Sacred Cow. Um, it was, so it's okay. actually so it the same project. Sacred Cow, the sort of the beta version. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, it just, I got a lot of feedback. I, I always listen to feedback and I got some feedback that kale versus cow sounded, I mean, I was trying to point out that the polarization is we're arguing about the wrong thing, not interpreted the way that I meant it to be interpreted. So, uh, so I turned the, the project into sacred cow, which is what it is today. Okay. Got um, it. yeah, but it all started. Um, I grew up on Eastern long Island and worked on, Farms as my summer job. And I was a fine arts major in college. I taught photography. I took a lot of film classes, um, but I never thought I was going to be a filmmaker. And I started out professionally working in the advertising industry and uh, doing like brand strategy and mostly for high tech. And I just didn't love making high tech companies more money. And so I ended up um, going client side and working um, for a tea company for a while. And then for many, many years for national public radio and whole foods market. So I really wanted to, you know, if I am going to market something, I wanted to believe in it. So that's how that started. And then when I had my second child, it was just really hard for me to maintain a full time job with lots of weekend and evening hours and uh, I cook everything from scratch. And so it's just, you can kind of do one thing good or maybe two things good, but not cooking real food from scratch, being a great mom and having a full-time job. Those like something's got to give up with those. And so yeah, that's a full plate. Yes. Yeah, so I took a little bit of a step back and started working on the farm where I was living, um, running running the store, running our membership program, and um, kept getting a lot of questions about nutrition. Why are we selling coconut oil? Isn't that a saturated fat and aren't those bad? And 
I had um, slowly learned through being diagnosed with celiac disease, which is a gluten intolerance, and then um, sort of my own individual studies on alternative nutrition that, you know, I felt better when I ate fats and I felt better when I ate, you know, a lot of animal source foods. And I also was observing on our farm that in order to grow great vegetables, animals have to be part of that fertility cycle. So you can either use chemicals or you can use animals. And so um, I decided to go back to school and study nutrition and became a registered dietitian um, after quite some time, part-time being a mom and and going to school at night and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had a clinical nutrition practice. I'm living on an organic farm that, you know, does vegetables and animals. And I'm watching this nutrition debate kind of percolating in the, you know, interwebs about, you know, if we're going to have a sustainable diet moving forward for human and planetary health, it must be a vegetarian or vegan diet. And just through all of my experience, both working on farms for about 18 years and then uh, with helping people with nutrition it just didn't make sense to me. And I noticed that there was no one really sticking up for the inclusion of animal source foods raised well in a healthy and planetarily sustainable way. So that's how I got to this point. So I started writing a book, um, a nonfiction book that's, you know, full of scientific citations. It's a very linear book. And I was kind of three quarters of the way through that book when um, a documentary had come out about how, you know, feeding your kids meat in the morning is just as bad and you might as well just be giving them cigarettes. And, you know, and, and these types of things are being shown in public schools, like in science class, as if they're actually based on true evidence. And I have kids in schools that are exposed to this. Their science teachers are telling them to eat more Beyond Burgers to save the planet. Um, And so I decided that, you know, because so many people are, so many young people are learning through film that I really needed, if I wanted to get this word out about uh, the nutritional, environmental, and ethical case for better meat, I really needed to switch gears and make this a film. So I did a crowdfunder. I, the first crowdfunder I did, I raised about a hundred thousand dollars. Um, and that's just through my social media platforms and those of my sort of colleagues that helped me out. And so I got started, started filming. It changed names. It went from one documentary to maybe this is a docu-series to back to one documentary again. It went through a lot of different iterations and now it's finally done. It ended up being mostly an environmental documentary where the book is sort of a trilogy, equal parts, nutrition, environment, and ethics. Um, I just felt that the environmental piece was what really needed a deep explaining um, and what I could show well through story, stories of farmers. As you were so, writing the book, uh, did you reach a point that you started to see the film come alive in your head as you were writing the book? Was that, was not, the pairing of the two beneficial or did that just give double work? It was actually, I, I don't think in a very um, storyline way. And so I'm, I write in a very literal way. And so the way the book is written, it would make the most boring film in the world 
because it's just an argument. Um, the book is just a, a linear argument. And um, the film is completely different than the book in that I'm actually taking people to farms and showing them. So it's, it's. Yeah. The last thing I would say is that the film is boring. It's, it's beautiful. It's intriguing. And I think you do a great job of sort of setting up what has become conventionally embraced so-called knowledge and having uh, these these experts and by experts, I mean, these are, you know, these are actually scientists slash farmers who, you know, draw upon the history of agriculture, the, you know, the value of uh, biodiversity. And it's 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 the wonderful combination of showing and telling. Um, and of course, you've got the, the narration of Nick Offerman. Mm-hmm. How'd that happen? I was in England shooting with James Rebanks, who is a sheep farmer there. He has written two books. The, the, he was writing English pastoral while I was visiting him, which has just come out and won a whole bunch of awards. But uh, I went to interview him um, after reading his book, The Shepherd's Life. And he's very active on Twitter, social media. In fact, that's how I heard about him. And he's awesome. Just it was so beautiful to go there and uh, it was really neat to visit all these places, both that were on my bucket list and that were never on my bucket list, but I had to go there anyway for the film. And it was just a, a real cool experience to, you know, go to places that you would never normally think to go like Chihuahua, Mexico, right? That's sure. not on most people's bucket list, but it was still just amazing. Anyway, so we're in England and he's telling us how Nick Offerman is coming like the next day after we leave. And it isn't it such a shame that we're going to miss him. And I said, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, wait, you don't know. And I, I just, I had never seen Parks and Rec. I didn't know who he was. Um, and then he said, well, he's really into Wendell Berry and he helped to produce that film about Wendell Berry. And I was like, oh, because uh, I totally I'm a huge fan of Wendell Berry. He's an agrarian uh, writer and philosopher. His books are really pivotal. Um, we're very pivotal in forming my ideas about sustainability. Yeah. Like in, in I believe he started writing on the subject back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the film about him, which he refused to be in, which you might even not realize that he's not in it because they did it so well. It's called Look and See. And Nick Offerman, was, I don't know how exactly he got connected with the project, but he ended up being a producer, um, one of the producers on the project, and then going around promoting it. And so I just couldn't believe that there was a celebrity out there that was actually pro-regenerative agriculture because Hollywood tends to be very, very plant-based and not a lot of people really understand ecosystem function and things like that. So, um, so I figured out a way to reach out to Nick Offerman. Um, turns out I also used to be a furniture maker after college. And so impressed him with my, with that's my right. That's a bit, that is a big, a vocation of his. Yes, exactly. So I sent him some pictures. I really wanted to work with him and it was really great. And we became friends. I, because of COVID, we had to do a remote recording with Nick in his bedroom. Basically we ended up doing three recordings because he wanted to, he kept wanting to redo them. Uh, cause the first time he was a little sick. And so, 
I didn't get to meet him, but, um, but we, we email each other all the time now. So that's really nice. Yeah. His narration, I think melds wonderfully with the film in the sense that it's, it's not over the top. It's not this voice of God. The film is, is so illuminating and, but it's not sensationalistic in any form at all. So I thought the, his tone, which isn't classic narrator tone, was spot on. So that's a- yeah, and he's recognizable to young people. His character Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec is very pro me in a very very different way than personally is. But Nick has a farming background and truly believes in all of this. And he graciously did some events with me to promote the film and some um, interviews and everything, explaining why personally he was so passionate about this project. So. How long was your shooting calendar? Well, there was a lot on the cutting room floor because we started out following some nutrition stories in Indiana that we ended up not using at all in the film. We went to Zurich a couple of times to a big, uh, couple of big nutrition meetings that we ended up not using in the film um, because it morphed into more of an uh, environmental film. I would say the shooting took about two years. But through 2019, when we were really finishing and I had the money to finish it and I um, ended up having James Connolly as the producer on the film to help me form this, it was either him with me or me alone with the crew traveling pretty much every other week. It was exhausting. That's grueling. It was a toll on my body because I was directing and producing and I had never done any of that before. So I didn't even know what a director was or a producer was. And I just had to figure it out. And simply for this film, the the role of director, how many different locations did you shoot in? I can't even tell you. That many. Yeah. Yeah, That many. And this is the, this is a beautifully photographed film. Uh, lots of beautiful aerial shots and just a lot of like pastoral shots. And it's evident that a lot of thinking went into the cinematography and the editing and so forth. And so that role alone, I would imagine would be all consuming. And then you got to put on your producer hat and realize that everything that there is to think about, you have to be doing it. Well, luckily I had experience interviewing people because of my podcast. And I knew I had pretty much already interviewed everybody that I interviewed for the film uh, previously on a podcast. So that was really great. And I knew the information I wanted to tell both through the farmers and through the experts we interviewed. And my other trick was that I hired uh, my director of cinematography, Nelson Walker is a filmmaker himself. And so basically I was like, just go for it and do it. Nelson. (laughs) Surround yourself with pros. Yeah. And if he couldn't make it on a shoot, he would have a call with the head photographer, the the head camera guy telling him exactly what to do. And so I'm so grateful that I had very, very good camera guys working with me and fun too. I mean, you're a family when you're going, you're all staying Airbnb together and we all got stuck in Dallas on the way to Mexico together. Uh, we got pulled over by the cops in Mexico together. That does sound uh, like fun. Yeah. Anyway, so it was, um, I, I was really fortunate to have an amazing crew. Yeah. And for our listeners, Diana's uh, podcast is Sustainable Dish. Mm-hmm. So everybody who's listening to this podcast, you want to run over and check out Sustainable Dish when you're done with this one. <laughs> 
One of the things that I was interested, uh, found really interesting in the film was the role of, it's almost identity politics. I guess I would describe the woman as a reformed vegan mm-hmm. who, who tells her story and quite, you know, quite fairly, there's no aspersions uh, being cast toward vegans in any way. Uh, but she tells her story and sort of the evolution of what her concerns were that led her to veganism. And then the concerns that developed as a result of that. I'm curious what your engagement has been with, been like rather, with the vegan community, both during the making of the film and now that it's, you know, it's out in the world, at least in some form, not as broadly as it will be soon. Well, Lear Keith wrote a book called The Vegetarian Myth, and she has had a lot of really aggressive people come at her from the vegan community. She's been pied with an avenero pie. She does not do book signings without security any longer. Um, But on the West Coast, some of the groups can be quite extremist. Here in the Boston area, I actually did film quite a lot with a young woman from a group called Boston Animal Saves. And so she's the woman in the film that's handing out the pamphlets, but we actually did follow her too. And she led us into her world, but it was, it just didn't seem like a fair portrayal of just this one vegan activist when we had so many pro meat experts, right. Then we would have had to really make it also vegan experts. And, um, I wasn't seeking to do a investigative journalism piece. Mm -hmm. This is clearly an advocacy piece. I, I'm very upfront about my position on the importance of animal sourced foods. And it wasn't like I set out to ask the question, should we be vegan or not? I um, very firmly believe that animals are important. Um, So yes, sometimes on social media or emails, I will get some hassle. Luckily because of COVID, you know, we haven't had a lot of theatrical openings. I was a little anxious about the idea of a theatrical opening, you know, for potential protests or something like that. But there really hasn't been. It's all been online. And we did do a one-week special release of the film just uh, over Thanksgiving. And so I was collecting email addresses in exchange for... Um, a free screening for one week of the film, which was extremely good for me. It it worked out great. My email list grew from 12,000 to 100,000 during that week. And were you getting, were you getting feedback from the folks who? Only positive, only only amazing. I mean, so many just thank yous. Um, I did uh, also ask them to please support the impact campaign and raised a ton of money for my impact campaign. So say a little bit about what that, what the impact campaign is, please. Sure. So, um, so we raise money from individuals, corporations, and foundations for the film, the extra money from that and whatever additional money I get is going to go towards the impact campaign where I want to reach out to more K through 12 schools, universities to do screenings and Q and A's, uh, policymakers and farmers to show them that there is an alternative to the conventional way of farming. And already I've had so many schools reach out to me and, um, because I can stream this online, it's actually great. I'm able to generate a link 
for them and they don't have to go through canopy. They don't have to, you know, order a DVD. They're teaching online anyway. So I'm just giving them a special link that they can give to their students and everyone can be watching this online. So that's amazing. Yeah. It's a very innovative means of distribution and it's demand driven. Yes. Uh, the farmer conferences also, so they're paying me a speaking fee and a screening fee and I'm able to just generate them a link and they have a 10 day window to watch the film and then I'll do a Q and a, and I have probably seven of those coming up just in January mm-hmm. all over the world, um, which is amazing. And then on the policy side, something really exciting just happened. Uh, the chief of staff of a Senator reached out to me, saw the film, read the book and wants to form a special committee through the Department of Natural Resources to get this type of grazing on public land and um, invited me to be part of this committee. Wow, that's huge. So I'm just overwhelmed um, to be able to have the support to be um, out there pushing the film and to also have so much success already with mm-hmm. the impact that it's, it's already having on people. So one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching the film, um, the farmers, the livestock farmers that, that you were profiling, their farms uh, are on a much smaller scale than what I assume, you know, agribusiness, agribusiness, livestock farming is. What are your thoughts on how to um, uh, essentially scale the measures that the smaller independent farmers are taking while, you know, at a certain point, somebody in an office someplace is going to say, what's this going to cost me? Right. So a lot of people don't understand that all the cattle that are raised for beef in the U.S. actually start out on family-owned cow operations on grass. So it's not like they're churned out in a factory or raised from babies on a feedlot. Um, but that's, you know, we don't know much about how our food is produced in this country. Um, one of the ranchers I met with in Chihuahua, Mexico, is actually part of a group that's restoring over a million acres of desert back into grasslands, which is what that area of the world used to be before we ruined it through um, poor management. And so all of this grazing that's currently happening right now can be done in a better way that actually improves ecosystem function. Instead of continuous grazing, it can be done in the way that we animated it through the film where um, it's it's just taking um, a little bit more time to move the cattle to give the land they just grazed a rest. And while it may seem like it's more labor intensive, it actually results in a higher carrying capacity. So your land can actually support more cattle mm-hmm. because it's healthier forage for the cattle to be eating and we can sequester carbon and we can provide habitat for endangered birds. Uh, you know, what we're losing the most of in the United States is grasslands because it's getting converted to cropland. Mm-hmm. And so when we have monocrops of corn and soy, we have lost all the habitat for the wild bird population because they need all the little grasses and flowers and insects, you know, that we're killing through insecticides, things like that. So when we do this type of grazing uh, that mimics how the bison moved across North America, 
we can actually see a resurgence of wild bird populations. I mean, that's why the Audubon Society actually has a bird-friendly grazing program. They're working with ranchers in order to do that. So uh, in the book, I did go through the numbers and um, it appears that we do have the land in the United States to grass finish our entire herd of beef cattle Hmm. um, just on grass. When you factor in the increased capacity that you can get from um, this type of grazing. So you actually get more grass, you can graze more animals. Um, If we take the underutilized areas in the U S that just aren't being managed properly and and manage them well. And then if we, um, you know, get rid of silly things like ethanol, which takes more fossil fuels to produce than it, than it benefits us. But every four years, it wins somebody the Iowa caucus. You have to keep that in mind. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, so the book is meant to really provide the citations and go much deeper into the numbers and the science behind all this. The film is really meant for high school and college kids to get the big picture idea or for somebody that doesn't really know much about this argument to give them an introduction to the argument and why biodiversity is so important and how cattle can help with that. Yeah. At one point in the film, I can't remember if it's in the narration or if somebody says it, but it just nails it right on the head. It's um, somebody says you can't blame people for being confused. Yeah. And that is so much the case because even people who think of themselves as ecologically minded, uh, health oriented, if you again, sort of just embraced conventional wisdom, you would think, oh no, meat bad. Yes. I mean, that's why we call it sacred cow. The definition of a sacred cow is something that is unquestioned and assumed as true. And yet also the other meaning of the sacred cow is that they're one of, ironically, one of our best tools at mitigating climate change. So as vilified as they are nutritionally, I mean, I'm surrounded by people in my area here, you know, where we live outside of Boston People are educated, they're concerned about their health, they're concerned about the environment. And if you eat red meat, you are definitely not in that group, right? Right. Right. And so my point was to really push back against that and let people know that that meat is important both for human health and for ecological function. Yeah, it's interesting. Another thing that I was thinking about when I was watching your film, I would imagine that the like the big beef lobbies have no shortage of funds. And it, yet it seems it, it seems like there's a lost opportunity for them to position themselves as being everything that you just said, nutritionally beneficial and environmentally, you know, more sound. Whereas unless I've I haven't seen, you know, maybe a new approach that they've taken, but they almost play upon the meat eater stereotype. There's a there's a lot of there was that campaign that ran for years. It was beef. It's what's what's for dinner. And it was, you know, like a cowboy guy driving up in a huge truck and grilling his steak. And, you know, you would think that the last thing that that guy would be would be a tree hugger. And that in a weird way reinforces those sort of cultural stereotypes between the vegans and the red meat eaters. And it turns out that, you know, you get to the point where somebody decides to be a vegan simply because they don't like meat eaters. Right. And it's really interesting because a lot of people, there's a lot of very progressive people that are behind the idea of cattle ranching in a, in a good way. But then when you talk about how it's also okay to eat, all of a sudden, then I become no longer progressive. I am the antithesis of that. Right. 
So I might as well be selling plastic straws. Right. Right. And so I actually had quite a problem fundraising because there are a lot of groups that felt that this was somehow political stance that I was taking by saying red meat is healthy. Um, And so the fact is the regenerative grass fed folks don't love that meat is healthy. They just want to save the planet with cow grazing cows, but we all need to be vegetarian. And then we've got typical beef people that don't love that. I'm saying, well, the current way we're grazing it is not really ideal for ecosystem function. Here's a better way. So I actually have no friends (laughs) in, in the meat movement because and definitely not in the nutrition movement because you it's not okay to say red meat is healthy if you're a dietitian in the US. So it's a very controversial stance that I'm taking, but to right. me and to the folks that are involved in this film is the only right answer. Yeah, what's interesting is that you know you're doing something right when you've annoyed entrenched interests on both sides of the spectrum. And so what your opportunity and it sounds like you're availing yourself of it, uh, is to tap in at the consumer level, the people who are concerned that about the, you know, sort of the, uh, the hard and fast stance on either side. Yeah, but I have to say that even, you know, corporations like McDonald's, which I didn't take funding from, I don't work with them, but if, I, if we can get them to purchase a percentage of their beef from grass-fed farms, which I hear is happening in Canada. Yeah, I believe um, I've heard that also. And I know that they've in also invested a ton into regenerative research through Arizona State. That is great. Uh, and I'm very pro-business. We have to get them on board. It's not going to be a movement of little farmers who you know happen to have a small patch of land in suburban Rhode Island. This has to happen on a massive, massive scale. Um, it's not only the government that's going to help this with the, the public lands project that I'm going to be working on. It has to come from McDonald's and Burger King and, and all these companies. And I, I know that, you know, even if we can get a quarter, a, a third of their, of their beef source in a different way, that is a huge win for everybody. And that also makes a lot of people mad <laughs> that, that believe that, you know, there's nothing good that could ever come out of McDonald's. But, you know, the reality is McDonald's isn't going away. Meat eating is not going away. Right. And so how can we partner with them? If the goal is more grass fed beef, then we need to work with everybody for that. Where do the uh, chemists, I guess, chemists and marketers behind the fake meat movement come in? To all of this, do you do you see them as more uh, being opportunistic in trying to capture a segment of the uh, you know consumer market, or are these concerned scientists? I think they're. I'm looking for the right word in my head. Misguided scientists who are using emotion and not science to back up an ethical stance that they have against animals. And I mean, I've, I've heard Pat Brown, I've, I've seen him speak. It does not make sense. And which, um, which of the products is he associated with? Is that Impossible Burger or? Impossible Burger. Impo- yeah. Okay, yeah. And so I don't know how you can increase biodiversity by wiping out animals. It doesn't make sense to me. By monocropping plants and instead of using photosynthesis and grass and sun and rain and cattle 
you're going to instead chemically grow one crop, take it into a factory and then convert that into expensive fake meat that's not nutritionally equivalent, costs more money, but it's more profitable. So, so there are definitely profit-driven uh, incentives in processing. That's where the money is made. It's not in growing a raw... The money is not being made by ranchers. Mm-hmm. It's being made by processors. And, and that's true of the meat industry or of the plant-based food industry. Um, you know, my experience working in the natural foods industry, like from Whole Foods, I go to these natural products expos, you know, and it used to be like one or two kind of plant-based products. And now all it is is plant-based milks, which are just white liquid. There's nothing nutritionally equivalent about these milks to actual milk. It's all sort of this greenwashing campaign because people are confused. They're conflicted. Greenwashing. Um, That's an interesting term. Yes. They, they want to feel better about their food choices. And this is a very simple narrative. And I forget who said it for every, every complex problem, there's a simple but wrong answer. <laughs> right. And uh, so our food system is broken. Um, it's our, the way we raise animals industrially and the way we raise plants is wrong. I believe that regenerative agriculture is our only solution and it's going to happen whether we choose it to happen or whether that chooses us. It's the only way forward because we're just ruining everything right now. We won't have probable land or grazing land uh, left in the future if we keep going at the rate we're going. Well, your, your, your film just does a remarkable job in illuminating pieces of information that I'm sure uh, is going to be eye-opening and mind-expanding for everybody who sees it. And it's just so wonderfully made. The, the cinematography, uh, the, uh, the, the, the music, uh, and the narration. So uh, congratulations on making, making a great film. Um, and so January 5th, I believe, is a big date for you, for you in the film. So tell us what happens then. The strategy we're going on with uh, through our distributor Uncorped is our distributor is that we're going to do a stream streaming on demand first, but the, the paid versions of that so that we can capture some money. You can make more money by the paid versions. Um, this is all new to me. Again, I had to have someone explain all this to me, right? I'm like, when's it going to get on Netflix? And they're like, well, maybe that's not the right strategy right out of the gate because sure. They don't pay very well. And so if you can try to capture some money first. So first I captured the audience and I got their emails and um, I can communicate with them. I can activate them on policy issues. I can I can get them to call their senators, that kind of thing. Next is uh, for the bigger release to try to capture a little bit of money that we can try to get from iTunes paid and and Amazon paid. And there's a few other platforms it's going up on. We are offering it internationally as well. I have a lot of followers in um, Central and South America, Australia, all over Europe. And so um, it'll be available wherever we can release it. There's some countries that are more restrictive, like Germany, you need to have it dubbed and subtitled. So we're going to skip that. And then we're going on... Uh, for April, we're going to be going on the free streaming services that are subscription-based like Hulu and, and Netflix. And we're just negotiating now with all of them. So I'm not sure exactly which one uh, it'll be, but we know that we'll get on one of them. So Yet another skill set for you to take on. 
<laughs> I just hire really smart people that know what they're doing so that they can tell me how to do it right. And so actually Filmmakers Collaborative was really helpful with that. So it's how I ended up getting uh, my insurance uh, for the film, my lawyer for the film, Sandy Foreman was also really helpful in a lot of ways. She gave me a lot of free time just to explain like, okay, this is how this works. I'm not going to charge you for this, but I'm just going to explain to you. And so she would, she was just so great with all of that. And actually, um, you know, at, at times I thought she was being a little overly nitpicky, but it actually ended up saving me money because uh, we actually had to fire our first set of editors and really? start with different editors. And if I had gone with the contract, they initially presented me with, I would have been out a lot more money than I was. So yeah. S- Sandy has been around the block yeah. quite a few times and yes. knows where she speaks most definitely. Yeah. And thank you for putting in that plug for FC uh, because we always want to make filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers or uh, first time filmmakers or veteran filmmakers aware of the wide range of resources that filmmakers collaborative. Offer. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't realize that um, having a 501 C three would be so beneficial and I would not have raised the money that I did raise um, it for my project in particular. And I know it's probably different for everybody, but it, it was the, the real deal breaker that was that helped me forward were a couple of really passionate individuals that um, cared a lot about getting this message out that gave substantial gifts. And they only would have done that um, through Filmmakers Collaborative. So because of the 501c3 status. So yeah, very important. Well, Diana Rogers, thank you so much for your time. I uh, wish you the best with, with the film. I look forward to seeing what happens once it's out in the world more broadly and um, keeping an ear out for the conversations that it generates. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to be interesting. So thanks again. And uh, something tells me that if I speak to you in 18 months or two years, you will have written another couple of books and Uh, just be finishing another film. I don't think so. (laughs) Famous last words. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Take care. 